Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The F word, the other F word, the N word, the S word, I could go, the C word, I could go on. We will go on. We're talking to John McWhorter, one of the most interesting, and at times I think it's fair to say controversial, linguist in the country. He's got a new book out about nasty words and nasty language. We're going to talk about that. Chances are we will also talk about wokeness. I mean, woke itself is a relatively... Neologistic word. Uh, But that's not the issue. The issue is where does wokeness stop and just stupidness begin? I think you'll find that John has some pretty controversial comments about that too. But the good kind of controversial comments coming up. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. <clears throat> well, we live in a linguistically complex and tricky landscape. It could be argued that we always have. Uh, it could be argued that there's sort of a narcissism of the present moment and thinking that the terrain is even harder to navigate these days. Uh, it's, but it is confusing to know what the rules are. The rules seem to tighten and loosen almost simultaneously. Uh, we've seen people recently lose their jobs for using the N-word in a kind of non-malign and citational way, but we've also seen a person get elected president in the teeth of a tape of him using the P-word, you know, in a pretty exploitive way. So before we introduce John McWhorter, let me just say that as my my prior locution suggests, we're going to struggle a little bit with this uh, subject matter today because it's hard to talk about on the radio. If we didn't have a tran- – the transmitter's the problem. If we were doing this in front of a live audience and then taking it direct to podcast, we'd be able to say everything. Unfortunately, there's a transmitter in the middle of all this, which means we're answerable at least to the FCC and, and maybe to the larger Western civilization. If you've listened to this show a lot, you know that we've actually used – some of the forbidden words citationally uh, over the decade or so. And and usually what I say is what I'm going to say now, which is 
I'm assuming that you're all grown-ups out there and that you know that we're exploring language right now uh, in, in a, a way, in a manner of examination, uh, and that we are not u- doing it to shock or titillate or denigrate anyone. So uh, if you get kids in the car, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we're going to use these words, but they could slip out because we're going to be talking about a lot of them. Uh, and- <laughs> And so, I mean, brace yourselves and, you know, all that. I don't know. I don't know if that gets me anywhere, but I said it. All right. Now, uh, this is somebody I've been eager to talk to for a very long time. I've been reading his work, listening to his podcast. John McWhorter teaches linguistics, American studies, and music history at Columbia University. He's a contributing editor to The Atlantic and host of Slate's Lexicon Valley podcast. His new book is Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. Uh, and he is joining us for that particular reason, because this uh, book uh, is out right now. Welcome to our show, sir. Thank you very much. Did, did I do enough caviling and... and... <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you did. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and groveling too, I think. So, um, maybe just maybe talk about that idea at the beginning here uh, about the about profanity, about forbidden words. I mean... Is there a way to kind of define what we mean when we say profanity, or is Potter Stewart right? Well, you know, there are some words where they would lead to the question as to why the words exist if we're not allowed to use them. There's a taboo status that attaches to certain words. And if you're moved to ask that question, then probably you're dealing with what the naive anthropologist would analyze as the language's profanity. And so these are words that, of course, are not never used, but the idea is that they're only used in desperate circumstances, that they're generally used if you just couldn't help it, and that you break them out in the way that you break out your strongest liquor, you know, just every now and then. And so that's what profanity is. And for us in English, we most conventionally associate it with words having to do with religious blasphemy, such as damn and hell, which I assume we can say, then the words that I can't say that have to do with sex and the body. But then we're living in really interesting times because over about the past 20 or 30 years, we have developed a new wing of the profane, and that is what we're usually accustomed to calling slurs. But slurs in our times are being reanalyzed by societal consensus as not just slurs, but profane, not just impolite, but absolutely taboo. And because we're living through it, and because we don't use those terms to refer to these sorts of things, it can all feel rather confusing, but it actually just falls into a pattern. Right. And the slurs, which we'll get to, are complicated as well, because uh, slurs are often a problem in in two different ways. I don't know. There's an old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy is yelling down the street at an unseen Charlie Brown and saying, Charlie Brown, you blockhead. And Linus says, you shouldn't say that. It might offend him. And she said, what do you mean offend him? And, he, and Linus says, well, he might really be a blockhead. Uh, and, and there's a way <laughs> in which some of the words that we'll be talking about, I mean, there's what you call the other F word, which is uh, the mm-hmm. uh, unkind word for a gay person. Well, I mean, it, you know, NBA players call each other that <laughs> The time running up and down the court. Exactly. They don't actually mean I think you're a homosexual. They, they no. mean this. This. So th- there's there's a way that you slur a homosexual person by calling him that word, and there's also a way that you slur somebody who isn't a homosexual by by applying that word to them. Slurs often kind of cut in two different ways. Exactly, and that creates all sorts of meanings. I mean, the truth is that even that f word itself originated 
rather in that manner, in that it starts out meaning a bundle of sticks. That's what most people often know as a factoid. But then its first human rendition was as, as, as women. The idea was that a woman was a bundle of sticks. That was a way to insult a woman. And so you would call her that. It was also assigned to children. There was a general sense of it being weakness, even into the 20th century across the pond. That word, believe it or not, was used almost affectionately for kids. You know, get out of here, you little. And that was that was the word. And then it becomes something applied to gay men with the idea being, how dare you be like a woman? That, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, that's one way that profanity can happen and one way that it expresses itself with gender. You skipped two things from the book that I really like. One of them is that the bundle of sticks initially was a way to sort of, you know, beef up or wood up the ranks of, of a depleted army. They would have these yeah. bundles of sticks that were simulating soldiers who really weren't there. They kind of, kind of the straw man theory uh, made, you know, made wood. Uh, and, exactly. and and that's where how it's sort of the worthless person, the superfluous person idea comes out. And then and this sentence, which I I have now read it like seven times, John, and I laugh. <laughs> I know which every one time. it's going to be. Yes, this is, I'll do it though. It's D.H. Lawrence. So he's talking about a yep. cow. He's writing about a cow. All right, and this is back when this word means somebody worthless, basically somebody of. And he writes to me, she is fractious, tiresome, and a faggot. Uh, <laughs> he's writing about a cow. He, he, what he, I love that sentence. What, what, he, what he means, though, is that he just thinks the cow is a trifling cow, even as right, cow's cow. Right, that sentence is opaque today because yeah. he wouldn't use it that <laughs> way. Exactly. It's, it's both funnier because it's opaque. I, I don't know. So uh, we should also say – I want to just sort of talk a little bit about time, too, because I think people often think about language as all kind of happening in the same time period. But in fact, it's radically different. So one of my other favorite stories in the book – I like any story that involves an abbot. Uh, so mm-hmm. you've you got this monk and he's pissed off at his abbot, uh, apparently, and he's writing uh, scribe style and he writes the sentence. I'm going to ha- have to sort of clean up one of the words. O.D. Cluckin Abbott. Uh, and, well done. And, and, <laughs> and so, but he does use that word, and he uses it kind of the way people do now, without the G on the end. Exactly. So, so, so un- you can tell it's been around a while. Right. Yeah. So un- unpack this a little bit, because we and we also have to explain what the the D is, because it's really interesting. What's what's a worse word uh, in yeah. that particular moment? That little inscription is so valuable because what it is is it's O and then a space, then D. And then Cluckin Abbott. And so if you look at it, especially if it's printed today with, you know, a modern font, it looks like he was saying old Cluckin Abbott. But the thing is, that's not what it looks like on the manuscript. It's just O and then a space where you can tell there never was a letter, then D and then Cluckin Abbott. The D is a euphemized damned. And so what you see in that inscription is that here's a time when to take the Lord's name in vain or to curse in vain, to swear, so to speak, in vain, is considered the bad thing while writing Cluckin, except, of course, the CL is an F, is considered, you know, salty, naughty. He's kind of this Beavis and Butthead monk, but still he can do it, as opposed to today where the way we would write it is probably, oh, damned. And then, you know, you would have the fuh. Today, yeah. not really, but certainly about 50 years ago and before, often it would be the F that was euphemized in public 
text. Right, we so still, yeah, you see a transition there. Yeah, we still basically do that. We say that, that, that Joe Biden on an open mic said to Barack Obama, this is a big effing deal. And we uh, pretend that we pretend that 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 was a big deal that this modern man said this. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we do we say effing, effing, um, mm-hmm. and everybody understands. So okay, so that's that's the 16th century. Okay, so we think well, yeah, probably a lot of these words were around a really long time. But th- so you you have an entire chapter about the word ass, which you can say on the radio. But the minute you append the word whole to it, you're in a very very different terrain, and you say this is actually a pretty modern coinage. Yeah, you'd never know it. You do see it used here and there way, way back in the day. But what it means is that you're an anus. It's it's a primitive kind of, you know, schoolroom style insult. But actually, it's only in the late 1960s that it starts taking on the meaning of somebody who transgresses when they know that they're transgressing. And so the classic definition is somebody who cuts you off in traffic. That is an a-hole as opposed to the earlier meaning which is that you're just kind of a doofus and you can see a transition there's a little scene in the movie the deer hunter with christopher walken and robert de niro where they use the a-hole word often but they don't mean somebody who's transgressive somebody who's going to steal your deer carcass or something like that they just mean (laughs) a jerk somebody who's not steady on their feet. That's how the word was used then. But I'm 55 and I remember being a teenager in the 70s and hearing the word used in the new way. It was considered very, very funny. And now it's just established. But if you ever see a movie where somebody uses a hole to mean trickster, why do you have to act that way? And it's 1930. That's technically anachronistic. Yeah. So um, actually, I remember when NYPD Blue got that word on primetime television. It was like after mm-hmm. 10 o'clock and you could actually say it. But, you know, speaking of that, and this is a movie that you referenced, so I know that you know it. Uh, you know, state of mind is really interesting, too. Right. I mean, intent. Uh, and so there's a, a scene in being there where Chauncey Gardner, the, the Peter Sellers character, who's kind of an <laughs> idiot savant, but like 90 percent idiot and 10 percent savant. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's approached. He approaches some uh, black city youths. And he asks them a bunch of questions that don't make any sense to them. And they respond with a bunch of profanities uh, (laughs) that are directed at somebody named Raphael. And (laughs) later, the next time Peter Sellers sees a black man who's a doctor, he says, I have a message for Raphael. (laughs) And he says all these things. In fact, at the end, there's a blooper reel. You can see the Sellers that couldn't even get through I was just thinking the blooper reel is funny because he's laughing. Yeah, he can't can't even. But that's one of the words he says. But it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean anything to him. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, we're laughing because we know his state of mind is completely different from anybody else's saying that word. Exactly, because to him, it must mean an anus, but that's not remotely what they meant. Then also in that same scene, now that I recall, he uses a, <laughs> a word that begins with B that is unfortunately often used to refer to women and then hyphenated with ass. And so he uses <laughs> that term. And once again, he has no idea what specifically that means. He must be thinking about like a female dog and you know somebody's posterior region. Yeah, profanity is subtle and it's very specific. So we're uh, America is going through a decades long dialogue about the N word, uh, and we're in a specific phase of it right now. But this is something that you treat at uh, ex- with an extensive um, look in, in in one of the chapters, uh, and you talk a little bit about the evolution of the word. I don't know if you want to maybe summarize a little bit of that. Well, really, it just starts as a term for Africans, the idea being that they are black in color. And the word is originally from 
from Portuguese because these are the slavers who first got a foothold on the West African coast. And then it gradually becomes a slur, which you know tracks with how people felt about black people for a very long time and today sometimes still do. And so you have that's kind of the N-word 101. Then the N-word 201 is that it's appropriated by black people very early on. A lot of people seem to think this only happened, you know, sometime in the 80s, but very early on, black people took it on as a term of affection, sometimes not affection, especially earlier, but after a while, it's buddy. It basically means buddy or <laughs> dear heart or something like that. And then today we have a real muddle where white and other non-black guys in particular who grew up listening to hip hop and have embraced it as the musical expression of themselves feel comfortable using that word to mean buddy among one another, despite the fact that because it's technically the same word as the slur, people listen to that and hear them just using the slur. So you end up having a very prickly discussion because what those white guys mean is not the slur. But then on the other hand, you could say that it is the slur Although you could also say that the word is now two words, one of them meaning terrible, inferior human being, and the other one meaning buddy of mine. These, it, these are hard issues. Right. I, I, I Actually, I think one of the um, pieces of popular culture that has dealt with it in a very interesting way is the series Atlanta. It was the first episode of the first season. There's a scene where exactly that happens. A white DJ is talking to Donald Glover's character, Earn, and he uses that word. He uses that word pretty much that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and he uses it in a, you know what I, I think he thinks is a very knowing way. And what, mm-hmm. what happens inter- is interesting is that Earn waits until another moment, a little later in the episode, where the same guy is present with Earn and a bunch of other black guys, including the character Paperboy, who's kind of bigger and a little bit, you know, I mean, the Donald Glover character is just sort of this kind of ultimately very non-threatening kind of Mm -hmm. person. And so, and then Earn, acting kind of harmless, uh, invites him to tell the story again. And the guy tells the story exactly the way he told it before, omitting that one word, Mm -hmm. kind of illustrating that, oh no, he didn't really feel very comfortable saying it to more than one black person, or maybe he didn't feel more comfortable comfortable saying it to black people he didn't know as well, or they didn't feel exactly. as safe with, or something like that. I mean, I thought it was a very subtle, interesting way to look at it anyway. It was. And what's interesting about the N-word is that there are various things happening in the news, especially lately, that can look a little peculiar. And so you have a law professor who writes N and then five asterisks on a law school exam about employment discrimination. And some black students took offense. And then there's the case where at the University of Southern California, a white communications professor is talking about international communication styles and mentions that in Mandarin, the way you hesitate and say like, like is nega, nega, which it is. And a group of students found that that was too close to our word. What all of that means is that this word is now not just nasty, but it's taboo. It's no longer just a slur. It's taken on this totemic status. And all of it would be very recognizable to somebody 100 years ago and how people were dealing with the F word. It's just that where the light shines has changed. 
Yeah, although, I mean, the examples you give, and we can also talk about Don McNeil from uh, the New York Times, who seems to to have used it kind of, once again, citationally in talking to some students on a field trip. Uh, uh, You've worked with Slate before. My uh, friend and colleague, Mike Pesca, has gotten a lot of trouble for conversations that he had. Similar. Similar, where he was talking about whether you can use the word or not, but using the word while saying it. To me, it's almost beyond taboo. It's almost being treated like some kind of Harry Potter spell or something. If you say it out loud for any reason, something bad might happen. You know, with with Pesca, who I'm also friends with, if I'm not mistaken, and, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he said it. I think he was just, he brought up more than once the question as to why people can't. And that was considered, you know, just something offensive to bring up, especially more more than once. And that really does show what we're, we're dealing with. And it's because we have a new kind of profanity. The naive anthropologist would come down and they would not think that the way certainly I and maybe you use the F word qualifies it as profane in the sense that somebody usually, a middle class person usually thought of that word 100 years ago. It would just be salty and in some cases practically punctuational. Yeah. The profanity would be things like what we're just describing and the sorts of things that happen. Those are the sorts of things that you used to get in trouble for with words like the F word and you know some others that I'm not going to mention. So things have changed in that way. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you're probably right about it, Mike. I, I, Slate hasn't been entirely transparent about what's going on there. Although somebody looked and found like 230 instances where other writers for Slate used it citationally in print, which you know, certainly Mike Beska never did, and they're not being punished. So I, I don't know. It's, it's. I would also. There's a podcaster at Slate who has used the word <laughs> citationally, and it's me. Yeah, and yet here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's difficult. Meanwhile, of course, you know, and so. It, one thing that uh, Issa Rae uh, has said is that she and people like Donald Glover, they reserve the right to continue to use the word in various ways as they produce culture. I, I like the way she said it. She said, the word is ours. It's ours to decide what we do with it. But this has been going on for a long time, too. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll play uh, a scene here from the, the Jeffersons. Uh, that's uh, a one there, okay. George, why do we have to fight so much? If we have a problem, why can't we just talk it through? Like Tom and Helen, they don't fight. They don't fight because they're scared to fight. What's that supposed to mean? You know damn well what it means. If you two ever really started going at one another, inside of five minutes, he'd be calling you. Don't say it. He said it. So, yeah, you got that. I mean, Red Fox used to say it on Sanford and Son. There's uh, Sons. There's a kind of classic SNL routine where Chevy Chase is doing word association and an employment interview oh, with, yeah. with, with Richard Pryor. And he keeps kind of piling on, turning up the heat, turning up the heat with things like Jungle Bunny and stuff like that. And finally, mm-hmm. he says that word. And and, and I think uh, 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 Pryor's free association response is dead honky or something like that. You know? <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. I mean, so it it's... It's owned and it's used, right? Uh, and the, yeah. the question is, I mean, is Issa Ray right? Black people own it. White people just really just don't anymore. Well, you know, it's one of those things. And I'm sorry that we are in the pandemic world where I'm at home. And, of course, there's a car alarm going on outside. That's okay. And I just can't control it. <laughs> and so we're just, I'm going to talk it's through very, it. Very but, tough. But um, in any case, yeah, I think that um, – there's room for saying that we are the ones who are going to decide. 
Although this this strays from my nine nasty words intent, because I want to say that book is meant to be a fizzy tonic after a difficult year. The N word is one chapter of many. I didn't mean it as the main one. I didn't start out thinking I want to write about the N word and then I'm going to pat it out with the other ones. I started out thinking I want to write about the F word and then patted it out with the other things and realized I needed to include the slurs. We're getting into the other kind of cranky race commentator me. But I think that if we, as in black people, are going to decide. I wish that we could decide in a way that gave the rest of society a somewhat more civil and logical latitude. I think that what you're calling citational usage was something that was considered okay until relatively recently. And I don't think there was anything wrong with that. And I know some people may claim that they were being injured by all of that, but I didn't hear them say it. It seems that what's going on now is a particular focus on the usage of the word and a particular degree of prescription that is corresponding with a time that we often call one of racial reckoning. And racial reckoning is one thing, but I think a pendulum is shifting in further in a certain direction than I personally would prefer. I guess it makes me aging in that I remember being a grown-up and giving interviews like this where I and white people could, with taste, use the word citationally so we all knew what we were talking about. It wasn't taboo yet. It was just a slur. Now things are different. Right. So uh, we'll take a break. We're going to have a uh, fizzy uh, John McWhorter come back uh, <laughs> uh, in the B segment. In the final segment, I might try to get cranky John to come back in just a little bit because I just because I read your newsletter. <laughs> I'll see if I can find right, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I read your newsletter, which I find really, really interesting and some of the stuff that you've been dealing with recently, which is probably that's a little cranky, crankier. Cranky me. Yeah, right, that's yeah. cranky. So we're gonna, we get fizzy, you get cranky, you get everything to get the whole McWhorter here. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. If your mind lies in the devil's workshop And evil doings your thrill And trouble and mischief is all you live for You know done well And that you go to Exceedingly polite, and I think it any right to return the compliment. Exceedingly polite, and he thinks it only right to return the compliment. At language or abuse, I never, never use whatever the emergency. The botherish I may occasionally say, I never use a big, big D. What's never? No, never. What's never? Hardly ever. Hardly ever says a big, big D. All right. So those are those uh, filthy uh, Gilbert and Sullivan people, um, <laughs> the original Wu-Tang Clan. Um, so uh, and with us right now is John McWhorter, John McWhorter, who's a very enjoyable and not at all disturbing uh, and fizzy uh, book uh, is Nine Nasty Words, uh, English in the Gutter, Then, Now and Forever. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we played this because you mentioned it. <laughs> In the book, and it's and it's. I mean, it's some. It's just an example, another example. I think of. I think strain is kind of interesting. You know, I mean, I think one of the reasons uh, that Howard Stern had to change his act once he got on satellite radio was the excitement of him straining against FCC regulations was gone. You know, exactly. and and you can sort of hear it there in Gilbert and Sullivan. What can I say? What can I say? 
Yeah, and notice that the idea is that he does say it a little. So it's not that it's a word that can't be used. It's a word that we have an informal agreement that is only used in extreme situations. And back then, you could at least have the pretense. It was already really falling away when that was written. But the pretense that damn is a big, big deal, that it was falling away meant that it was a joke. But yeah. That's what that is. Thanks for playing that, actually. So, um, so well, let's play some other things too. So, one of the things that we uh, we we actually talked about this series uh, when it when it first dropped, but uh, kind of running a little bit as a as a video, a kind of accompaniment to uh, uh, to John McWhorter's book. Uh, there is this uh, history of swear words, and here's Nicholas Cage. He's talking about what we might call the P word. It is a thing of great wonder and mystery, quivering with complexity, strength, and resilience. However, also buried within a delicate femininity, and dare I even say, naughtiness. Look one way and you see a gentle feline innocence. Look another way and, oh my. Yes, it has the power to stir our souls and intoxicate our minds. Men have died for it. Women have moved in with each other way too soon for it. And to fully capture its essence, we must plunge, unafraid, deep within its enchanted garden. Oh, my friends, we are so close now. Feast your eyes upon the very house of life and death, the temple of sensuality. And a term for that kid, too afraid to play dodgeball in gym class. Behold! It also could be a cat. (laughs) Okay, so that's Cage (laughs) dancing around it. Uh, Let's also play cat. Let's play uh, A2 just to hear the contrast of somebody not dancing around it. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. Um, setting aside what always bothered me, which was whether he kind of understood even female anatomy. It's not like that's a. <laughs> it's not like a handle or something, you know. But but anyway. Um, so you know, I, well, we should say first of all that the cage thing is funny again because he's. I mean, in a very playful way, straining against any reticence to say the word, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting about the, the Trump comment is that it shows what's genuinely taboo today and what's falling away in that I think more substantially, we have to understand that the overt sexism of this did not keep him from the presidency. But also he used that word and he became president. That word is one of the body part words. And it's at the point where a president heard using a word like that still has a shot. Whereas I think it's a good guess that if he had called somebody a C word and that was what was caught on tape, or if he had used the N word, that would have been more threatening, even with the Republican Party as currently constituted, that would have been considered so embarrassing and so transgressive that it really would have threatened his candidacy. And I think that indicates where profanity is at this point. Yeah, we'll kind we'll kind of never know. We should say that these comments, as I recall, were preceded by a description of his interest in some woman. I can't even remember who the woman was, and he said, "I I moved on her like a bitch," which yep. I I don't yep. entirely even understand how you do that or which person <laughs> is being like a bitch. Uh, there's actually sort of a way in which the preposition doesn't really uh, fit the That's sentence. That's a that good well. example of how profanity often doesn't make sense. It's like you can say, "Fan it like." And then you use the word that begins with S that refers to excrement. Yeah. Go ahead. No, harder, harder. Fan it like, if you think about it, that makes no sense at all. If anything, you'd think <laughs> it would mean that you weren't fanning it properly. But instead, it means to fan it 
vigorously. And this thing of, if we're allowed to say that, you know, like a bitch means that you did it with vigor, like you're really pushing hard on it, which makes very little logical sense. You know, is do we associate a woman who transgresses while knowing that she's transgressing as somebody with a particular vigor? I, I don't necessarily, but that's because profanity in a way is not words. It becomes gestures. It becomes seasoning rather than references to anything. Right. And the, and the other thing that we knew is that you should pardon this particular analogy or pun or whatever, that that particular moment, that Access Hollywood tape was sort of a Pandora's box in the sense that suddenly everybody on CNN could say pussy, basically. Everybody could say that word like constantly. For And they did. Like they really made use of that freedom for weeks and weeks because they could <laughs> say it citationally. They could blame it on Trump. And so they so they uh, they were very, very free uh, with that privilege. But I want to go back to what you said before and just see. I'm not even sure that we know that the C word would have gotten him thrown out of the game. You know, I mean, because I just don't think I don't think anybody thought I didn't think he would survive the excess Hollywood tape. So but but are is it the case that the C word and words like it exist because there has to be a pale beyond which you cannot go? In other words, there has to be some kind of fence sitting there out, uh, you know, on the outskirts of language that demarcates, you know, sort of semi-transgressive from fully transgressive? Well, I think that there is something to be said for the fact that um, in human societies, there is going to tend to be some area that is treated with taboo cognition, with taboo norms. That's part of what the anthropologist would look at in any culture. And just the issue is just what it is. And so you might have an indigenous culture where after a particularly influential figure dies, you can no longer say that person's name and you also avoid using words that sound anything like it. That's a very normal human way of dealing with language in the wake of death, for example. And for us, I think that slurring groups of people, subgroups of people, has taken on that status. And that's why. So, for example, the C word used to be used to mean, you know, basically it was a dismissive word for women. It was exactly like the 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 quote unquote rapper usage of I don't want to say the word again B I T C H there used to be a white version of that and it was C U N T we were looking at a bunch of mm's coming down the street there was barely any room on the dance floor because there were all these mm's dancing that's 1911 and then the word takes on a different status as the 20th century moves on and I think that's tracked with how we treat women and so it's it's there and I think most cultures are going to have something like that in language to track the fact that it is natural and human to have a taboo realm of things. And I think we think that because we're first world people with tall buildings and, you know, electricity and, you know, psychotherapy and et cetera, we think that we're beyond that, but we're not. We're not. We have taboo just like anybody else. The uh, oh, There's so many things that I want to say about that, too. And it is true that the, the two uh, sort of female nether part words that, you know, kind of get flung around are, are also used – you know, once again, we talked about the kind of the other F word and how you can apply it to somebody who is a homosexual and that means one thing and somebody who isn't a homosexual and it's a different kind uh, of denigration. And it's sort of true here, too. You can actually talk about – you can apply some – the C word to the the thing – it's the part itself to a woman or to a man. And, and British – 
swearing. There's a lot of that, right? It's like the C word is often applied. Definitely. Kind of the way yeah. we would use a-hole, but also with a slightly more trifling quality to it, maybe? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's chance. Some things just differ because that's the way the cookie happened to crumble there as opposed to here. I would be loath to trace that to any difference, either positive or negative, in what the evaluation of women is there. It's just that slang is going to develop in different directions in different places just because of, you know, how the planets were aligned that given day. But it is, it's interesting to go over there as, you know, one of us and to hear how that word is used and to imagine that we could use it that way and not get <laughs> smacked, although without the proper accent, it probably doesn't sound right. But yeah, these things differ from place to place, even within a single language. Yeah. Just because Peter Cook and Dudley Moore can do that doesn't mean that anybody else can. So, um, and I think the other thing that you get into, and I wish we had more time for this and also that I, I could, we could do all these things without losing our FCC license. But, you know, there is a sort of joy in all of this and there's a, a, a rhythmic and rhythmatizing, if that's a word, quality to all of this. I'll give you an example that's kind of there in your, in your book too, which is like, for example, you've been dealing with Betsy Kaplan. You know, sometimes if somebody, some guest is being uncooperative and she tells me, you know, well, John McWhorter won't do this. I'll say, you call him back and you tell him that you are Betsy freaking Kaplan, except that I don't <laughs> say freaking, um, <laughs> you know, and I don't even know exactly how you would describe what the purpose uh, of that particular gerund or participle is, you know, when you <laughs> interpose it. But people do that a lot, right? You know, I'm Johnny freaking fabulous, you know, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it just, uh, it, what is it? It just, it's a way of just putting a little bit more of a drum roll into our language sometimes. Yeah, it's very expressive and it can indicate many things. It can be disparagement. Like I'm going to say this about my hometown because I love it very much. But if I didn't like it, I'd say, oh, God, we have to spend it in Philadelphia." freaking Delphia. <laughs> and then also it can mean that something is fantastic and, you know, it, we're going to build it in freaking Miami or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It's one of those things that means that the F word is not. For one thing, it has nothing to do with sexual intercourse in those meanings. And also, it's nuanced. It's rich. It's subtle. A linguist could have a field day, and some linguists have, with what has been called freaking insertion, if I can put it the proper way. And there, there are <laughs> rules about it. Like, notice that you would never say, my freaking Amy, except as a joke. It has to be freaking Miami. Yeah. Sense of freaking natty, but not sin freaking sonatty. You have to be very careful. And yet, as an English speaker, you know how to do it. Betsy freaking Kaplan, not... Betsy Kaplan freaking, maybe freaking Betsy Kaplan, but Betsy freaking Kaplan is better. All yeah. of that is part of having a nuanced and rich command of a language. And we've all got it. Profanity is not only fun, it's also complicated, which is something I try to get across now and then in the book, too. There's rules, but there's also intense subjectivity, too. Um, there's things that seem like immutable rules. And then there are just very pretty idiosyncratic reactions. There was one. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to remember it. Is it is the one that you don't like? I don't give two poops about that. Yes, I don't like that expression. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's too it's it's too graphic. You know, it's just it, well, like one poop would be okay. Yeah, that's I don't give a poop <laughs> is fine because that's abstract. But if you say I don't give two, well then I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about you produce not just one but two. And did I really have to think about that unless it was absolutely necessary? Yeah, I don't like that one, but that's just me. And you know, I'm not expecting anybody to listen to me. No, I, you are America's ling a linguist, capital A, capital L, but. <laughs> That, I think you're alone on that. I can't imagine another person. I can tell that's my issue. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of hilarious too. And I mean that's the other thing. We we I don't know if we've said this out loud. 
I mean, most of this stuff is just really, I mean, when it's not used malevolently, you know, when it's not used right. to make some kid cry or, you know, but I mean, <laughs> most of the time it's just stuff we paint with, right? That's actually a very good way of putting it. And and yes, I mean, there is the transgressive in all of us. There is always the desire to make language sing a little bit, to spruce up our expressions. There's a reason, for example, why you could say ass, but it's kind of more fun to say jackass. You could say S-H-I-T, but it's more fun to say bull S-H-I-T and so on. They're double versions of most of our curse words. Goddamn is better than damn because we're always trying to keep them fresh. It's part of being human. It's part of the basic sap of life to be colorful and vivid with your language. Profanity has a lot to do with that, which is why even though we're not supposed to use these words, of course, we often do. Yeah, and the words also do, I mean, spit and bullspit mean kind of different things. And in fact, some friends of mine have this fairly young puppy who causes a lot of trouble and bites, you know, and chews on you and stuff like that. And every once in a while, I will say, Go to the dog park and try some of your bull spit on the dogs there and see what they do. <laughs> um, and for their, there's something funny about saying that to a dog. Uh, right. And uh, so, as if the dog has any any kind of self awareness. <laughs> right. right. Oh, really? <laughs> they might they might be offended by my my bull spit if I go there. All right. So we have to take a pause before we lose our license. We're going to come back with one more segment with John McWhorter. This is so much fun. Uh, Nine nasty words. English in the gutter. Then now and forever is the book. We might see a little bit more of. Cranky John, if I can coax him out here on the final segment. They will clean up all your talking in a manner such as this. They will make you take a tinkle when you want to take a piss. And they'll make you call fellatio a trouser-friendly kiss. Here's the plain situation. There's no negotiation with the fellas at the freaking FCC. They're as stuffy as the stuffiest of special interest groups Make a joke about your bowels and they order in the troops Any baby with a brain could tell them everybody poops Take a tip, take a lesson You'll never win by messing with the fellas at the freaking FCC And if you find yourself with some young sexy thing You're gonna have to do her with your ding you can't say penis, so they sent this little warning them. Real hot girl-ish. Ah. It ain't always about what you like, sometimes it's about what's right. I'd rather be a B-I-T-C-H Cause that's what you gon' call me when I'm trippin' anyway You know you can't control me, baby You need a real one in your life Them just niggas ain't gon' give it to you, right? I'd rather be a B-I-T-C-H Cause that's what you gon' call me when I'm trippin' anyway You know you can't control me, baby You need a real one in your life Them just niggas ain't gon' give it to you, right? Why you wanna play with me? You know I'm undefeated A real high girl know how to keep it in heated You say you All right, so... I wasn't even going to go there, but I guess maybe we, we, we're going to wind up there anyway, So, and that'll be fun, uh, too. Let me, before I uh, bring back our guest, say some thank yous, uh, especially to Cat Pastor, technical producer, playing all these clips, and Betsy freaking Kaplan, producer of this particular episode. But... Um, so anyway, well, we're talking to uh, John McWhorter, teaches linguistics, American studies, music history at Columbia University. Uh, his new book is Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. You know, I mean, since we just had uh, Megan the Stallion come up there, it, we are, are, are in this very interesting moment where in a lot of ways, 
language is very policed, you know, and I think you've pointed out maybe in the, the newsletter, I can't remember the newsletter or the book, that really people feel a lot less comfortable saying flinging the N-word. I mean, white people feel a lot less comfortable in most situations flinging the N-word around than they did 30 years ago. You know, on the other hand, I mean, as somebody who talks about culture on the radio, I'm constantly trying to figure out, okay, should I just call the song WAP and not explain what WAP stands for? Or, you know, because and, and there's an argument, obviously, that in this case, women rappers are taking some of those words back, whether it's mm-hmm. the B word or the P word or whatever, and, you know, appropriating them and, and rather than being exploited by them. Uh, you know, embracing them and using them, which is, as you point out in the book, a very old tradition that applies to all kinds of other words. But we're, there's a certain amount of license and freedom and a certain amount of restriction, each of them existing in, I think, almost un- unprecedented measure. Yeah, it's a really confusing time. I know of two separate instances, anecdotal, where somebody explains what NWA stood for and uses you know the the n word citationally and is chided and in one case it was a teenage son chiding you know with politely but chiding his own mother for this showing just this generational divide and so yeah it's a it's a tough one and we have to just kind of keep our ears to the ground and get a sense of what's considered okay and what isn't i personally would like moderation to be the rule, but that's just me. And there are clearly other people who don't feel that way. A lot of it is about how revolutionary your politics are. And of course, we all vary on that. Yeah, that chiding thing is really interesting. I'll recommend something to you. Uh, It's on the McSweeney's website, and it takes the form uh, of a monologue, a fake monologue by Luke Skywalker telling Obi-Wan Kenobi that it's not okay to call them sand people. Uh, and he says, like, when you say that, it just, you know, because you know, I'm sure you've been saying that for years, but they're Tuscan Raiders. That's what they're called. They're not called sand people. Uh, right. And it just like, sounds so modern. I do want to just say your newsletter is really, really terrific and interesting. Uh, and and you, Thank do, you. You, you do it without relying on any photos or anything. You just like get us right in there with, you know, sometimes two or three thousand words of text, which can be daunting. But, um, you know, and you really are touching some third rails, third rails really that are more ex- likely to offend people, you know, left of center. I mean, you know, you went after the term systemic racism last week, which I did. uh, It takes a certain amount of intestinal fortitude to go there right now. Um, Yeah, but I I thought that someone needed to do it. Not that I'm the only person that does, but I think we really do need to have a reckoning about what we mean by that term and what we want to do about systemic racism once we agree what it is. Because I don't deny that there are those sorts of systemic inequities between white and black people. However, what I'm not sure I quite get is how we can solve those problems if we think of them as the same thing as bias against another person. It's a really messy term because racism sets our brain firing in a certain place. Then if you say systemic racism, you're thinking with the same kind of indignation, you're anthropomorphizing society to an extent, or you're assuming that systemic racism is a bunch of single bigoted individuals and the some combination of their attitudes. When the inequities that we're talking about, if we're going to fix them, and we do want to fix them, often lend themselves to solutions that don't have to do with changing anybody's mind in terms of racism, and that aren't about battling a racism that's operating now. 
A lot of a lot of what is called systemic racism is the result of racism that was exerted 50, 60 and sometimes 100 years ago. And it's one thing to say this started like this. And a lot of people are very committed to showing it started like this to show that there's nothing wrong with black people. I completely get that. But then the question is here and now, what do we do about that inequity, which is no longer about anybody's bigoted feelings and sometimes is no longer about anything that is unfair to black people. Social history is really complicated. And what worries me and the sort of thing that I am writing about in the newsletter, because I can just write it instantly and send it right out, is that I think we're encouraged to think that sociology is simple, especially when it comes to black people. There's a sense that astrophysics is hard. Literature is hard. Art is hard. Math is hard. Everything's hard. Carpentry is hard. But when it comes to sociology as applied to the descendants of African-American slaves starting in about 1960, suddenly everything is as simple as finger paint. And all we need to do is do something called get rid of racism. I'm not with that because I don't think it will help black people who need help. I think that it tends to lend itself. First of all, it, it lends itself to a kind of fatalism. How do you change a system? And it lends itself to thinking about, do we understand that racism is more than somebody using the N-word and reinforcing each other and showing that we understand that rather than getting out on the ground and doing the sorts of things that Martin Luther King did to actually change lives? It, it, it encourages a kind of a self-indulgence. And I worry about it. And I want people to understand, I'm not saying that these are just my little preferences as to how we talk to each other. I'm not saying black people don't have problems. I'm saying that to solve black people's problems, I think we need to do things more mundane than sit around exploring our own psychologies. But that is a view that is often called contrarian. I guess I'm contrary. Although, you know, Obama said something very similar. I don't have it in front of me right now. But he said, basically, if you think that by adjusting your language or like, you know, liking something on your phone or something like that, that you're really addressing problems, you know. And and James Carville, I don't know if you saw this thing. I think it was in Vox. He went on a rant. He I said, read that. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he said, he said, you know, he talked about how politicians, Democratic politicians shouldn't talk the way they talk in faculty lounges and fancy colleges. He they use a different language than ordinary people. They come up with a word like Latin X that no one else, no, no one else uses, or they mm-hmm. use a phrase like communities of color. I don't know anybody who speaks like that. I don't know anybody who lives in a community of color. I know lots of black and white and brown people. They all live in neighborhoods. Um, and- <laughs> you know what actually worries me, though, is that there's a kind of person who's listening to this and they're saying, why can't we do both? Right. Why can't we police language and try to change how people think and be out on the ground? But the problem is that there's too much focus on the first thing. So, for example, if people are really concerned with helping poor black people with the problems that poor black people have and even non-poor black people, then why fire somebody for using a word wrong? Why does that person have to go? Why is that so important? Wouldn't the more important thing be grassroots activism and actually going out and changing things. But instead, we're encouraged to pretend that firing Donald McNeil from the New York Times is somehow a a necessary part of the process of making life better for a black mother who doesn't quite know where she's going to get the next grocery for her kids. I don't see it. I I think that we're getting caught up in too much symbolism and kabuki, and we put most energy into that as opposed to trying to actually go out and do something. It would be so interesting for a lot of the people now who see themselves as speaking for black people to have a conversation with their equivalents in 1960 and what was considered to be the work, so to speak, in 1960, as opposed to now. It would be bracing. All I'm saying is that I think we need to get back to basics. It's not that there's no work to be done. 
I did like one of Carville's lines. We have to stop here. But one of Carville's lines that was McWhorter worthy, I think uh, he says, I'll tell people we got to stop speaking Hebrew and start speaking Yiddish. We got to speak the way regular <laughs> like people speak. Yeah, I thought that was a great line. <laughs> All right. So the book uh, is, in fact, Nine Nasty Words, uh, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. John McWhorter is the author. He's been our guest, and this has been a lot of fun today. Thanks for listening. And uh, John McWhorter, uh, don't be a stranger. Come back. Write another book and come back. I'm here. All right. We know where to find you. We know where you live. All right. Uh, thanks to Betsy freaking Kaplan for producing today. Thanks to all of you for listening and perhaps exhi- exhibiting a little bit of patience when we strayed across certain lines and pales and taboos. Every picture I take, I pose a threat. Bone and jet, what you expect? Her f- so good, I bought her a pet. Anyway, every day I'm trying to get to it. Gotta say to my phone on the big booty. Anyway, every day I'm trying to get to it. Gotta say to my phone on the big booty. In the world, don't speak the language. But your booty don't need explaining. All I really need to understand is when you talk dirty to me. Understand.